So, welcome back. As you know, my name is Pastor Jake, and today we're going to be looking at last week's sermon first. So last week, if you weren't here, uh, if you were here, uh, you'll remember that we looked at uh, Samuel. As God was calling Samuel, he was working through Samuel's life, and we talked about the question, why does God wait? Why does God wait? We looked at three different people and their lives. We looked at Samuel's mother, Hannah, who had prayed for years for a child, and she learned patience and trust in God. We looked at Samuel, who was learning to hear God's voice. And we looked at Eli, who was getting an opportunity to learn from his mistakes, and he was learning to communicate with God, and he was learning to listen as well. (sighs) Eli learned that it wasn't just a coincidence, the things that happened in his life. He learned that God was the one that was ultimately in control. Ann and I were learning this morning that uh, things don't happen by coincidence, do they? And God's teaching us, uh, God gets a hold of us in several different directions. It is never coincidence. God always wants our attention. He always wants us. So Prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel is where we're going to be again. He eventually grows up and takes over the priesthood as Eli passes away. So he's growing up. And in 1 Samuel, uh, we're actually going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 9. He's older at this point. He's taken over the priesthood. And God has used him for many things. He will continue to use Samuel for many things in the future. Uh, Eventually, he will be uh, anointing a king, which is actually one of the things that we're going to be talking about. You see, at this point, the priesthood has failed. What has happened is that Eli's sons were leading the nation astray. They weren't leading them towards God's covenant. Samuel came up and did a good job. Samuel's sons, on the other hand, what we're about to read did not follow the Lord, even though they were the priesthood as well. And so the nation actually has the elders come up, and they say, you know what, we need a new king. We need someone around. They want to look like the pagan nations around them. Even though they've been called to stand against these nations, they now hold to the same ideals. And it's a very, very sad story. In fact, actually today we're going to be looking at the question, how does a man go from worshiping God to worshiping himself? How does a man go from worshiping God to worshiping himself. You know, see, nations are made up of individual peoples. The whole nation has gone from worshiping to God, but it's not just the nation, it's the individuals in the nation that have been making that choice. So to individualize that particular statement, we say, could I go from worshiping God to worshiping myself? Can I go? This message is called the slow fade, the slow fade. We're going to be looking at a man who starts humbly, who has a lot of opportunity and a lot of responsibility placed on him. And that opportunity gives way for sin to be accepted into his life. And unfortunately, he does that. I want you to look at this story and I want you to ask yourself, could I too follow this path? Could I follow this man's steps? If given the opportunity, would I choose to worship myself instead of worshiping God? So Sam is getting, uh, Samuel is getting up in uh, age, and First uh, Samuel chapter eight verses four through nine. Sorry, I said First Samuel nine. We're in First Samuel eight verses four through nine. Is where we're going to start. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and he said to them, "Look, you are old. That's a great way to start. Hey, you're old, uh, and your sons don't walk in your ways." So make us a king to judge us like all the nations around us, like I was just saying. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said this, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. 
according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of the Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So God has recognized this horrible choice, and Samuel has taken this personally. As a person who serves God, at times you will feel like people are rejecting you for telling them the truth. And that's the way Samuel feels at this point, that they're telling me no, they're rejecting me. And God says, no, it's not you. They're rejecting me, ultimately. Ultimately, the nation no wants, doesn't want anything to do with me. So God says, you know what, if you guys want a king, I'll let you have a king. Sometimes God just lets us turn around in our own sin and let us go down our own destructive paths. And you might have a testimony about God letting you go down your own destructive path. He tells Samuel in the next couple of verses, and you can read it on your own time from verses 10 through 22, all the burdens that are going to come from having a king. He gives them a very detailed, this is going to hurt and this is not going to be fun list before you go into it. And at the end of the list, they say, yeah, we still want a king. He's like, okay, we're going to go ahead with this. You've been forewarned what's going to bring. So he starts looking for a king, and we find a very humble, shy man, and this is Saul. So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin, this is the tribe, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becherath the son of Apia and a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. He had a choice, handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than among the children of Israel. For his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. So apparently in old times, as we are going into the election year, they needed good-looking elected officials as well. I mean, you ever look at the TV, you don't see ugly people running for office normally. Well, this is one of those instances back in the Old Testament. This guy is apparently really handsome. He comes from a a decently well-off family, and he's head and shoulders above everybody else. Mike, you're gunning for this. Uh, he, He is taller than everybody else. Everybody else literally loves Looks up to this guy. <laughs> God and the people aren't always looking at the same thing. The people look at the outside, and that's not said here. It's said in other places in Scripture. Right now, the people are looking at the outward appearance. God looks at the inward appearance, but he does decide to go with this. Now, at this point, we're going to find that Saul is currently a very obedient son. He's very thorough. He's good at his tasks, and he wants to follow what God is doing in his life. And this is the beginning of his life, so let me introduce you to him. Verses 5 through 10. Verses 5 through 10. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return. At this point, they had been looking uh, for some animals that had gone astray, and they couldn't find them. They'd been out for several days. He said, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look now, there is a city and a man of God. He is an honorable man, and all he surely says will come to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, we shall bring, what shall we bring this man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. So what do we have? The servant answered Saul, and he said again, Look, here I have one-fourth of a shekel of silver, and I can give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when they went to inquire of God, he spoke of thus, Come, let us go see the seer, which is now called the prophet, formerly called the seer. 
Then Saul said to his servant, well, said, let's go, uh, let, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. This might seem like an insignificant event, but in all reality, what we are going to do is place a bookend on Saul's life. We're going to have one side of bookend, and you'll find out why we bookend this. What you're seeing here is a man who is humble, who is thorough in his duties, and he is serving those around him. He is serving his father, and he's doing his best. And at this point, he's concerned that his dad's going to say, you know what, I don't care about the donkeys. I want my son back in my house. But they're going to go uh, one more ditch effort and uh, try to go to the man of God just to make sure that they've done everything they can before coming back. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. Just skip down a couple verses. They run into Samuel. Samuel answered Saul as they've come. He says, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them, for they have been found, which is good relief. And on whom is the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, my family the least of the families of that tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? So Saul isn't expecting to hear high accolades or uh, praises from the prophet. He says, you know what, my family is of nobody. We come from the smallest tribe of Israel. In fact, we're probably the smallest of the families in the smallest tribe of Israel. Does that sound familiar to you? If you've been paying attention uh, in the last couple of weeks, it should There was a man by the name of Gideon who used that same excuse back in Judges. Judges 6.15, indeed my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. His response when the angel of the Lord came to him and said, you mighty man of valor. Saul at this point is humble. He also suffers a little bit from a low self-image. You might identify with him. If God approached you, you might have the same response. Who am I that you should call on me, Lord? Who am I that you should choose me, that you should use me? What have I done? You see, our natural reaction is to look inwards at ourselves and what we can do, where we're from. But unfortunately, our natural reaction isn't to do what we should do, and that's look at God, the one who is calling us and what he can do, what he has done. Saul makes that same mistake, just like you and I. There's an old saying that power corrupts. You've probably heard this saying I actually don't agree with this saying. I don't believe that power corrupts. I believe that power and privilege strip away our excuses and they give us options that we'd never thought of before. There's a movie where a man is about to be given this super serum and he asked why he was chosen above everyone else. And he says this, The guy that uh, created the serum says, this is why you were chosen. He says, the serum amplifies everything that is inside. So good becomes great, bad becomes worse. And this is why you were chosen. I want to tell you that wealth and privilege can do the same. Good can become great or bad can become worse. It's not necessarily that power corrupts. Saul will start well, and you'll notice that here in these verses. He does good. He even actually does good things for the nation. His first couple of wars against the Philistines. God actually has prophesied to Samuel that he will eventually, Saul will eventually help the nation almost completely break the bondage out of the Philistine rule. He does good things, but the power and privilege slowly allows him to make more and more sinful choices. So in chapter 11, the Amorites are coming and they threaten to destroy one of Israel's southern cities called Jabesh Gilead. Saul, through the Spirit of God, rallies the nation. So why don't you hop over with me to 1 Samuel 11, just a couple of 
chapters down. We were in nine, now we're going to be in 11. Chapter 11, verses 6 through 7. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. So Saul is going to be doing this through the Spirit of God. When he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen, he cut them into pieces, he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent, or one purpose, one idea. They all came out and battled as one. Saul takes the lead under God's spirit, and he ends up winning the day. He calls the nation, rallies them together, people who were fragmented, who needed one singular leader, and he does that. After the party, though, men start saying that the people who shouldn't have voted for Saul or who didn't vote for Saul should be put to death. And Saul has a very interesting response. He tells where his heart is. If you just come down a couple of verses to 13 through 15, this is what happens after the battle, and they've just won. 13 through 15. But Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day. Okay, you don't kill the guy you didn't vote for. Just don't do that. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. But then Samuel said to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they made sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And there was Saul and all the men of Israel and they rejoiced greatly. You see, Saul has trusted God for the victory. And this is very important. Saul has pointed back to God and said, this is God's victory. It's not always going to be that way in Saul's life. He starts out his life, God is the one that deserves the victory. God's the one that did all this. And he goes and he's very humble and he wants to spare people's lives. Two years later, just two short years later in the ministry, he has won several different victories and he has started to gain a little bit self-confidence. In verse 5, we see the Philistine army again rallying yet another attack. Samuel, on this time around, has not left specific instruction, but Saul has jumped the gun. This is very specific. So before the battle happens, the prophet Samuel is supposed to be there and make a sacrifice. And he has said, don't go to battle until I'm there to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Then we can go into battle. Saul, at this point, jumps the gun. So I want you to pick it up with me. Just a couple of uh, chapters down, chapter 13, verses 18, oh, sorry, 8 through 14. So we're just hopping through. We're going to be slowly hopping through his life right here. And this is where it starts to turn. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Then he waited, talking about Saul, seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now what happened as soon as he had finished, it's the way it always happens, just as soon as you finish, just as soon as you know you did the wrong thing. Presenting the burnt offering, Samuel comes, and Saul woes out to meet him as he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines are going to come down to me at Gilgal. And I have not made supplication to the Lord, so therefore I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord to your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be your commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. 
So at this point, Samuel is telling Saul, if you'd have just listened to what God had instructed, and if you'd had patience, and you'd actually trusted God instead of trusting yourself, this is the first step away. At the previous battle, just a couple chapters back, it had been two years into the ministry, that's actually where we're at right now, he'd been trusting God for the victory. He's starting to gain self-confidence. He's starting to win victories. And he's starting to think, I'm the one doing this. It's my burden. It's, uh, it's all on me. I'm the guy. That's what comes across very clear here. And that's why he goes and he does the sacrifice. Instead of waiting on God's word and waiting on what he's been told by God, he jumps the gun. We can compare Saul to our solid start in America. We have a privileged past. We started very humbly, and because we didn't want to start this nation, we felt like we had to start this nation. We have been an amazing witness to the world around us of God's character and who he is. We've sent missionaries out all around the world in the past couple hundred years as a nation. We were considered at one point a Christian nation. Like Saul, our prosperity, our opportunities allowed the cracks to show, and our inward sin has started to bubble to the front. The power hasn't corrupted us, it's just given us options, and we've started to take the sin-sided options. Saw followed after his own selfishness, and we can now see that we the same are following after our own desires as a nation. We are following in many of the same steps. What Saul needed to do was to repent and start following God. I'm going to tell you today, as a nation, which starts as individuals, we too are going to have to repent and follow God first if we want to see a change. Now, if we hop down to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, we're going to find the next step away from God. We're continuing down a path of Saul slowly going into his own plans and worshiping himself. And this is kind of a big turning point. He's already started slipping. We've already seen him going down the slope. Now it's full on. This is all about Saul. Let's check this out in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 15 begins with this. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people. Now, therefore, hear the voice and the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. Okay, so there's another king that's actually coming against. He's the king of the Amalekites. For what he did to Israel, how we ambushed them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Pause there for just a second. Back in the day when they were crossing the Red Sea, while the men were away, the Amalekites came and they slaughtered women and children. They, they, they took the nation by surprise and they ambushed them when the men were away. And this is what God is saying. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, is what the Bible says. This is God repaying vengeance. He says, now go and attack the Amalekites. And utterly destroy all that they have. Don't spare them. Both kill the man and the woman, the infant, the nursing child, the ox and the sheep, and the donkey. Now, if you don't believe in the Bible and you want to accuse God of something, and you want to say God is this homicidal maniac, you go to this verse or another verse like it, and you say, look at this one verse. God kills everybody just for his own glory. God is not a good God. You should not be following him. But they don't look at the full picture. They point out one verse. And this is where people get it wrong about our God. Number one, like I said, God is repaying the nation that had done the same to his nation years back, generations ago, when the men were away, they came and they attacked 
the women and the children. They slaughtered them while the men were away. This is coming back full circle to them. Also, these are people that are known in history for having child sacrifices to their God. They put their children on altars and sacrifice their children to appease their gods. These are people that are slowly leading Israel away from their own God into the same horrible, horrific practices. And God's saying, get rid of them. They are no good. They are leading you down the wrong path. Wipe them out entirely. And Saul has the opportunity here to finally do that. But he doesn't. The instructions are clear. Kill everything. Let's read chapter 15, 7 through 14. So it's Saul had attacked the Amalekites from Havalah all the way to Shur, which is the east of Egypt, in verse 7. He also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best sheep, and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I am greatly regretting that I have set Saul up as a king, for he has turned his back on following me. He has not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel. So indeed, he has set up a monument for himself. Saul has set up a monument for himself. He has gone on around, passed on by, and he's gone down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. (laughs) But Samuel said, What is it then, this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them up from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep of the oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Saul has disobeyed a direct order from God. And now, if you'll hear it in his voice, there's something very specific at the end of this. Did you catch this? He is now saying, but the people took the spoil. The leader has now blamed the people. As a leader, you don't blame your people. You're the one that takes responsibility. We as leaders, whether it's in our house, in our company, in our nation, you as a leader are responsible, not the people. You take full responsibility. He's blaming the people that he was instructing. Then he also says, to the destruction and sacrifice of the Lord, your God. What has changed now is he used to say, my God. Now he says, the Lord, your God. Saul has changed his tune. He is no longer following God. In fact, actually, he's even set up a monument for himself. Back in the day when Israel actually had won a victory, they always set up a monument to who? To God. The tribes would come together. They would erect a monument. There was a great battle here. To God goes the glory. Now Saul has completely changed his direction. So Samuel comes down pretty hard. And he says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Uh, In the passage, if you continue reading it, he does repent. But Saul has this problem. He repents and he says, I'm sorry. But it doesn't seem like he really means it because he never really changes. Did you know that there is more than one word for sorry? Did you know that sorry has more than one meaning? You know, there's four ways to say I'm sorry. The first one is to say, I'm sorry, I'm at fault. This is the big one. Out of the four ways to say, I'm sorry, this is the one where ownership takes place and action happens. When you say, I'm sorry, I'm at fault, you own it, and then you start making a move and a change in your life towards course direction. There's another way, and this is probably the most common. It says, I'm sorry, I regret it. For a moment, you regret your actions, mostly because you just got caught. 
you've probably said this to your spouse or to your parents or to somebody else. I'm sorry, I regret it. Really what you're saying is I regret that I got caught. That's more than what anything. It doesn't lead to any change. It just says I regret it. This isn't a life changing. There's a third one. It says I'm sorry, I sympathize. You typically say this at a funeral when you don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. I sympathize. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm sorry for your loss. That's that kind of sorry. That's a completely different kind of sorry. But the final sorry is I'm sorry, but not really. We don't ever really say, but not really. That's kind of left out. But, but that's what we really mean. If you've ever had kids, uh, you probably know what I'm sorry, but not really means. Uh, you've probably worked with somebody that said I'm sorry, but not really. This is the worst response because what it does is it'll harden your heart every single time you use it because you're not softening your heart. You're saying, yeah, it's not really my problem. I'm, I'm sorry. You're just letting it roll off your shoulders. You're not taking any action. You're not actually having any emotion to it. And it sounds good in the moment because it kind of de-escalates the problem. I'm sorry, honey. Not really. And you keep going on. It's the same problem. It keeps popping back up because you make no change. I am guilty of this. My wife will nod her head probably a lot. <laughs> this does not help your marriage to say, I'm sorry, but not really. You need change after you say, I'm sorry. Trust me from personal experience. Unfortunately, Saul typically said, I'm sorry, but not really. And in fact, if you know anything about Saul's life, he eventually has a, uh, a sire. His name is King David, eventually. Uh, and he gets uh, these confrontations with David. And David catches him. And Saul will say, I'm sorry. One time he gets caught with his pants down in the cave. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry, David, you're our better man. I will stop following you. Ten minutes later, he's following and trying to kill David again. And it happens again and again and again, all the way until his death. It's a recurring cycle. He says, I'm sorry, but in all reality, it doesn't change him. He doesn't mean it. Why? Because he doesn't care. So speaking of his death, let's uh, bring this one full circle. So at this point, uh, by chapter 15, Samuel has passed away. And God is no longer answering Saul because Saul has sinned standing in his way of being able to hear God. Saul's completely off the beaten track. So he starts doing the unthinkable because he is yet again facing another war. He goes up and he says to his troops, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go and inquire of her. If you actually read 1 Samuel 28 and a little bit of 1 Samuel 27, what you'll find out is that in days past, before this time, Saul had actually, when he was actually for the Lord, got rid of all the mediums and sorcerers from the land. He got rid of all the false pagan worship, wiped it all out when he was following God. And now when I said it was a bookend, because at the beginning of his ministry he sought God, now he is seeking a sorcerer to try to bring up Samuel's spirit so he can get something because God's not listening. Why is God not listening? Because he's not listening to God. He's fully in sin. So he tells his troops to seek out. This is a complete 180. Now I skipped over a verse earlier on, on purpose. Remember King Agag, where he spared all these extra things that he wasn't supposed to, that he was supposed to get rid of. When Samuel is berating him, and um, he should be, uh, he tells him this. Samuel says this to Saul. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So we as Christians would probably be appalled if someone accused us of witchcraft or idolatry. But this is what has just been accused of Saul. Samuel has just said this to him. How dare someone accuse me, a Christian, of someone who follows God, of being a witchcraft person or someone who is an idolater? You see, Saul's rebellion 
and his pride are linked in this passage. You see, pride and rebellion actually link back to the Garden of Eden. And it goes to Satan's influence in that garden. Satan actually had that pride and that rebellion, and he sowed that into mankind and that doubt. And so this passage is actually suggesting that ultimately to choose to follow your own ways, to rebel, linking this back to the garden, is to follow Satan himself. Our rebellion goes back to following Satan's advice instead of God's advice. And that's why he's linking this back. Now, I asked earlier, could I go from worshiping God to worshiping myself? Our nation has. But our nation is made up of individual people like you and I. So have you. Have you gone from worshiping God to worshiping yourself? How can we stop what has happened to Saul? We just watch him go from the early on in his ministry following God to ultimately at the end of the day completely following everything that God was against. Everything that he tore down at the beginning of his ministry started rebuilding back up. How can we go against that? How can we stop it? Number one, repent. Choose to say, I'm sorry I messed up and mean it. When God calls you out for your sin, be careful which sorry you decide to use. Saul chose option number four, the I'm sorry and I really don't mean it. And it hardened his heart towards God. He had a hard time repenting and actually allowing himself to be moved. When you choose your sorry, it'll either harden or soften your heart the next time God calls you out. Your reaction this time, when God says, you know what, you did something wrong here, your reaction will either make it easier for God to call you out next time or harder for God to call you out. Number two I want to tell you is seek God. Well, that's great advice, but how? I'm glad you asked. Number one, if you guys can read that, I thought I could read that just fine. Oh, yeah, you guys can read that on the projector. That's awesome. Um, Number one, by being in God's word daily, study it, memorize it, meditate it, know it. When you know God's word, you know what isn't God's word. uh, There's an old uh, analogy of when you study real money versus studying fake money. The tellers were always told, bank tellers, study the real money. So then when you know something's not it, there's a lot of different counterfeits out there. Study God's word and know it. Meditate on it so that when something that is not it comes, you'll know really quickly. Number two, by praying for faithfulness. Pray that you would hunger God's word and that you would love him with all your heart and that you would be faithful in the midst of trial. And number three, by praying for others. Pray for our nation. Pray for God to work in this land because prayer draws us closer to God. In fact, James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. How can I stop from beginning to worship myself instead of God? Seek God first. Seek God first. I'm going to close. Father, I thank you just so much for the opportunity to preach your message. Uh, Father, thank you for being able to record this down for us, that we can learn from the mistakes of other people. I know I won't live long enough to make all the mistakes myself, so Father, Help me to learn. Help each one of us to learn from the mistakes of Saul, who had a very slow fade. He had a very strong start where he was following you. And he made little decisions that seemed inconsequential at the time, but they slowly hardened his heart. So, Father, I ask that you protect each person that hears this message from those little inconsequential decisions that slowly lead them away instead of toward. Father, help each one of us to pray for others around us. Lord, help us to have a heart I know it is sometimes hard to love the people around us. Lord, help us to have a heart like yours, to love those around us. Help us to draw near to you. And I thank you so much for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.